0: Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is my truth. Tell me yours. On this episode, I spoke with Brian Servin. Uh, Brian has written the book, Lore of the Jack-O-Lantern. And uh, this year, Brian will be doing live readings of this at four locations in new hampshire maine and massachusetts in october uh i'm excited because i'm going to be taking part in three of the four of them um brian was also a member uh a long time founding member of backstabbers inc with his brother matt Servin, who has been on this podcast before as well so this was cool chatting with brian and um yeah i hope you enjoy my conversation with brian Servin. Yeah, I I, I had your brother on uh, this maybe, I want to say it was three years ago, but I think it was, I think it was pre-pandemic, which is like, has been such a weird time warp thing because like, at this point, it's been three and a half years basically since lockdown began and anything that happened pre-pandemic feels like it was like a minimum of like five years ago. Yeah. But even stuff that happened, like, you know, a little into the pandemic feels like it was only six months ago. And I was like, no, that was three years ago. It's just kind of a, like, it's such a weird, like, I don't know. I, I don't know how it, how it affected you, but it was about the same. It's like, uh, I've
1: always thought of my life as being sort of eras.
0: Yeah. And
1: now there's definitely the pre-COVID era and yeah. the post-COVID era. And it, it's, it's been weird. Yeah. Everything about life. We had moved, my wife and I had moved out to California uh March first of that year. So we didn't even get the chance to Oh twenty twenty. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully she was able to keep her job. Yeah. Uh, around here, they're like, Oh, please just stay on remote, you know, yeah. for a little bit um until we find somebody. Then COVID hit and they're like, Oh, we're not gonna hire anyone anytime soon do you want to stay on? And yeah, we couldn't find work. Yeah. You know, and it just it was brutal. You're you were know, in California, were you? Uh San Diego. Okay. Uh, so it's I think eight months when we were back. Yeah. And
0: that that just feels like a dream. I can hardly, sure. I can remember it? Yeah, I did. I um, are you are you from New England originally? Yeah, we were we were born in Rochester. Okay. Lived there and I've I've always lived in the general area except for that. Yeah, I um, I grew up in Exeter, but then I did ten years ago. I lived in Arizona for four years, and it was one of the like. To me, it's such a. It feels almost like a fever dream. Sometimes it's funny because I moved out there with a girl and, uh, uh, I mean, she'll come me for saying that's what she probably wants to do it. I should say she's a woman. She's turned 40. Uh, but she's still out there. We're still friends, but like, I didn't know anyone else out there. So it was just the two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we split up, it was, I was like, ah, there's not much keeping me here. And, um, it's such a weird, like chunk of my life. And I made friends out there that I'm still friends with, but like there's, like little connection to my life back here so it's just kind of like a weird fragmented part of my life but uh yeah it's a uh, it's very strange very strange um so you last year um you put out lore of the jacket lantern um which that's not that's not your first book is it I uh, technically yeah it would be I I've had um I had a poem
1: a couple of poems published in an anthology back in the nineties when I was a teenager. yeah. And then I uh, had a short story published in a anthology. Um, our friend, uh, Shama Cumber, he was writing for decibel. I think he still does writing for that uh, yeah. occasionally, but I believe the metal maniacs founder was sick, uh, terminal, I believe. I, I think he may have passed at this point. And, um, they were putting together a series of short stories, horror writers and musicians. Um, just to raise some money for the family. Sure. So he uh, kind of threw it out to me because he knew that I was kind of messing around with writing. Yeah. And I thought, hey, why not? I'll just, yeah. <laughs> I'll just pull that together and see how it goes. And I enjoyed it so much, I thought I'm going to really put some effort into this, Yeah. you know, and, and back off the music a little bit for a little while.
0: When he, when he <clears throat> first approached you, were you still doing Backstabbers at that point? I was, yeah. although Backstabbers at the time...
1: I mean, our history has been probably more off time, but never breaking up, but not really doing anything. Sure. So we, were, we were kind of in this lull yeah. at that point. I think that was probably 2015 that I did the short story. Yeah. So we were still planning on
0: doing things, but yeah. things weren't quite happening at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It had been a couple of years since you had released a record at that yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, after you published the short story. Like, from then to, like, did you, already, how long have you had the idea for, or the jack-o'-lantern? Like, what's the gestation period, and, like, how did that come about? Uh, long
1: story short, um, basically, uh, my friend Beth Lamontain Hall, she had um, an event that she leads at 3S Space called Long Story Short. Yeah. And she had a dark story series and I think it was 2017 yeah. that my brother and I went and listened and they had a person who talked about UFOs and someone who talked about their haunted house and another person who, um, read from a story. And when we left that, I said to my brother, I thought, oh, I think it'd be really cool to do something like this next year. Yeah. Um, you know, but maybe have a story that fits the time slot, you know, yeah, you, know, you can have the whole story arc and everything. And he kind of held that in his head and then, I don't know, eight months later, Beth contacted me and said, "Oh, Matt had said that you were interested in maybe doing something for it." Yeah. And at the time, I was I was working on a, a novel, and I wanted to kind of take a break from it anyway. So sure. I had this like three four month period where I thought, "Okay, I need to come up with a story that's gonna be Halloween and fit into a time slot where it can be presented." So then I started thinking, you know, whether it's quintessential Halloween yeah. horror can fit in any time of year and whatever, but the idea of something being pumpkin related kind of stood out yeah and i started doing all sorts of research about the folklore behind it yeah and within a pretty quick period of time i wrote that story and presented it at 3s um, in the long story short format and then i presented on a portsmouth radio station and then after that i decided okay i'm going to really flesh this out no rules yeah you know no guidelines just let the story flow and then for I think it's November into January, twenty seventeen to twenty eighteen, is when I wrapped up the story. Yeah. And then at that point, I'd, I'd known from the beginning that I really wanted Dan Blakesley to do the art. Yeah. So then it was a matter of
0: waiting and sure pressing for that to happen. Yeah. Did you had you had a conversation with Dan when you were working on it, or were you like, I'm gonna, I want to get this all written and then present it to him and then see what he says, or? I hadn't
1: had a conversation at, at that point. I had told my brother about it. Yeah. And he uh, he alerted me to the reality that Dan is always super busy. Sure. And always has a lot of people um, looking for him to do art. And that it may not... I think my brother was being a good older brother and being like, I know you really Don't want this, but I, you know, also yeah. look at other artists. So and it occurred to my mind, but I thought, okay, probably the easiest thing to do if someone's super busy is to do the whole story. Because initially I thought about kind of working on it, it together yeah. if he had ideas I could incorporate in the story but let, let, let go of all that thought I'll just complete the story yeah and when the story was done I sent it to him and just said I'd love you to do the artwork for it. not just the cover but you know full page illustrations yeah and he got back to me pretty quickly and said he read it about three times and really loved it yeah super busy um, didn't want to hold me back yeah. but he loved the story and that just kind of set it up Yeah for um once a year asking him until sure until sure. he caved in so that was around 2018 yeah 2018 is when i started asking him 2020 fall is when i got the cover yeah and the rest of the illustrations came up until last year 2021 uh yeah. 2022 um mid summer yeah you know just probably about eight weeks six to eight weeks before the book was released is yeah, when yeah. the last
0: because there's what, there's what, like about 15 illustrations yeah. inside? Yeah. Um, and it's, I love how it's funny because like, you know, because there's not an illustration on every page, but when I was reading it, you know, if I'd flip to a page that there was an illustration at the end, I was like, all right, I got to finish the page before I look at it because it was, it was only like, it was almost like this is my treat at the end, but also <laughs> seeing like all the little details that you mentioned in the story that are like, in the, in the illustration, you're like, you're like, wow, Dan really got into the story, and like, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it complements it really well. Um, it's also, it's funny, like the whole time, and, and we're roughly the same age, so the whole time I was getting like with the group of kids, like a very much like a Goonies slash Monster Squad kind of, <laughs> kind of feel to it. I don't know if that influenced your, your, your writing at all, if that was in the back of your mind at all. But yeah, it was, I mean, those were two, uh, those were two, uh, you know, things that stories that I loved as a, as a kid with kids being the protagonist. So, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. It's exactly what I was going for. Um, when I've had to pitch the story to uh, different people, it's. I always usually reference Monster Squad and Goonies yeah. and um, the Body Stand by Me movie. Sure, sure. You know anything with that group of kids that you know are a little bit of outcasts yeah. dealing with the the terrors.
0: And it definitely has. Uh, I could see the you know the, the body uh, reference as well because there's 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 a darkness there's like a there's a heaviness to this that. I think the first time I read it, I wasn't fully prepared for. Only because I think with Dan's illustrations, uh, you know, I, I I think anyone who's from this area, um, you can't help but know Dan's illustration work. Even if you don't know who Dan Blakesley is, there's a familiarity to it. But there's there's kind of a whimsy to it that um, kind of like I guess I I myself have like a preconceived like. I see Dan's art, I see Dan and like, you know, Dan has such a, I mean, Dan's almost a cartoon character himself and, you know, no, meaning no disrespect. Yeah. I, I love Dan. Uh, but, uh, and I was like, oh, there's like a, there's like a underlying heaviness and some dread to this story too. So yeah, I can definitely, I can definitely see that as well.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, that's what been one of the challenges I think with, um, even just going to the local bookstores and being like, sure. "Hey, here, I got this thing," the first impression based on the artwork is that it's for people much younger. When I wrote it, I didn't have an age, you know, in mind. I didn't yeah. think I'm going to write this for this age group. A few people, um, some of the readers, um, one of them is a teacher. I asked them, you know, who would who who can read this, and they yeah. said, uh, eight nine year olds can get the basic idea of the story. Yeah, the interest level is probably as early as 10 or 12, but more likely it's the people who are coming to the readings, nostalgic adults. Sure. You know, who kind of like want to have a little bit of a feel of the stories we read when we were kids. Right. But have some of the, the themes that yeah. are universal.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, at the end of it, like the particular story that's told in the book is closed out, but it's, there's enough ambiguity that I feel like Maybe there could be more with this group with the Ferals. Like you, like do you, did you do it that way on purpose? Do you have other stories that you're thinking of with them, or just like, oh, maybe I'd like to write more with these characters? Uh,
1: in the the novel that I was working on at the same time, it's set in the same area, so kind of you know Stephen Stephen Kingish. It's kind of easier to build. A story around a place that you kind of get in your head once yeah you don't have to kind of re-establish sure these these especially earlier on and I guess my writing career that simplifies it there is an element in the, the novel where there is potential for a little bit of a crossover so someone who may have read that and reads this they can kind of get that there's there's a small relationship right so that was part of the purpose because the novel itself also has these crosses in it that can lead to multiple other stories. Sure. Um, as much as things being really open is has been in for the last ten, twenty years where everything's left open, yeah. As much as I wanted didn't want to kind of do that at the same time, I thought that if I had completed things with Stingy Jack completely, then what is there to fear? Sure. You know, so sure. a young reader might get that little chill, like, Oh, is he out there?
0: Right. Um, unless he's totally dealt with. Sure. Oh, well, sure. you're certain that he's dealt with. Yeah. Well, and there's also, I think one of the things that I really liked about it, which I think works with a lot of, a lot of works of fiction that do this is that you don't get a sense of a particular time that this takes place. So it gives it a timelessness to it. So, you know, cause this story could have easily happened in 1985 or. 1973 or, you know, 2023. So I, I like that, but it's also like it leaves it leaves it open for, you know, more things to happen or, like you said, you know, stuff happening in your novel that doesn't necessarily have to do with these characters, but you can see like, oh, they this person crossed paths with this person at this point or whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you picked up on that because that's that was something that was important to me was to be careful about explaining even in the artwork so when dan and i were collaborating on the artwork he did all the drawing and the conceptual of what the character should look like i would say things i'd leave them notes sometimes i would um draw up really crude sketches of scenes and be like oh maybe place them like this yeah so there's some collaboration there but when it came to things like decorating the children's bedrooms yeah you know i was really careful not to have things that would definitively place it some somewhere in time. Sure. So that, sure. you know, someone, um, my parents, our parents' ages could read it and identify with it as, you know, when they were growing up or yeah. or so on.
0: Yeah. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's like your description of the town, the, the I know it's definitely a, a different time frame than that, but like the thing that kept popping into my head, the look of the town in my head was uh, Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow, which, not necessarily an amazing film, but visually, like one of my one of my favorite, certainly one of my favorite like Halloween time films. And it's you know, obviously it's this is set in New England. That's upstate New York, but I'm just like it's it's close enough. It's the it's the Northeast, so yeah, definitely yeah. Uh, your description very much like brought me into that place, into nice. the Narrows. So yeah, definitely definitely dug that a lot. So tell me about so you published this. Last year uh, is when it uh, came out. What was the, um, because it's self-published, correct? Right. Was that always your intention? Did you look at other avenues for that or? Uh,
1: I initially, um, at the start of the pandemic, like a lot of people apparently, we had moved to California and I was thinking, I want to start looking for publishers at that time and yeah. agents and everything while I'm in this lull and transitioning. So that when the pandemic happened, a lot of people did that. Yeah. I was looking at agents at that time for the novel because most agents don't want to talk about shorter stories. Yeah. So I kind of thought, push the novel and then I have all these other shorter stories on the side. Maybe that will come up eventually, you know. Um, unfortunately, they're inundated with people, you know, and everything. And... Uh, everyone had reached out to basically close their doors and yeah. was in panic. So that didn't happen. I thought, okay, well I'm going to, I'm going to put this novel to the side and wait. And what can I do myself that is accessible, especially if it's going to be my first self publishing. And there's a lot of kind of chirping in my ear, from the internet of uh, a lot of writers, even people like Chuck Palahniuk who, who've gone that route of traditional publishing and agents and all that. Yeah. And felt like they didn't have enough control over their work. So part of my art, art feeling was I, I don't want to get to a point where I don't get I can't control my art either yeah. I don't want someone telling me how the story should should go so then I was, I was kind of wavering back and forth and then the opportunity just came I'm just going to go all in on myself and you know yeah. my wife and I will invest in it and see where it goes yeah. and that, that was that, that really was the impetus um, control and something tangible something I knew linking up with Dan also is a help because even though I've got a little bit of notoriety for the music, even that's like most people haven't heard the bands anymore. You know? Sure. You get older and there's new bands popping up all the time. Yeah. So I, I never really have really a following. So then being able to um, get a little support from people who know and love Dan are there are definitely people who have bought the book just because of that. Sure. Which has been helpful. And I, I hope that they picked it up, looked at it, thought it was pretty, and then read it and thought, oh, this is cool, Yeah, yeah. which would help with the other things that I'm working on is kind of trying to build up
0: um, people noticing that I'm doing stuff. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the music and, like, you know, constantly building because I, you know, a couple weeks ago I ran into you and your brother at Sunny Day Real Estate Show up in Portland and, you know, I took a picture and I posted something and I was like, uh, how did I say it? Oh, I said I ran into a couple of backstabbers, and a, a friend of mine who lives out on the west coast was like, "Were those guys like dicks to you or something?" Like I was like, "No, no, no, it was a joke." It was. I was like, "They, they have this. There was this band. Yeah, you know, there is this band, uh, backstabbers Incorporated. You know." So I went through that whole <laughs> explaining, explaining that whole thing. Um, but um, so this year you have. Well, we're here in Portsmouth. You have two shows in Portsmouth at 3S. That's like a audio-visual visual presentation of this, correct? There was one in September, one in October? No, this year um, there's only one at 3S.
1: I have four shows in total. Um, okay. If I remember the dates real, real quick, I think it's October 18th, Coolidge Corner, yeah. uh, Boston, Brookline area, and then the 22nd 3S Art Space in Portsmouth, the 28th in... At the Word Barn in Exeter, okay, and the twenty ninth at the Space in Portland.
0: Oh, for some reason, I had it in my head that there was something on September thirtieth too. That was the la- well, That was the date of last year. Oh, okay, all right. I think it's. I think it's still. It must be pinned to the top of your Instagram thing. Oh, that's, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's like <laughs> the first or second thing, and that's that makes a lot more sense then. so. Okay, so so you guys did a reading last year, yeah. Um, was last year the one where uh, Dr. Gasp and the Eeks played? Yeah. Okay. All right. Because I was like, oh, wait, which one's Dan playing at? And then that, that makes a lot more sense now. Um, so how did that go last year and what are you doing differently this year?
1: It, it was it was awesome last year. I remember when I was talking to 3S and pitching it, I didn't have any of the artwork done other than the cover and had yeah. never done anything like this in my life, but somehow I convinced them to give it a shot and actually they were pretty open to it at first and i remember when i was talking to um the director she had asked how many people i thought might come and i I was like i don't know 30 maybe 50. yeah and i was picturing a room with 30 50 people i was like awesome and she goes i think we can get more like 150. yeah so having them think that this might be accessible to people you know kind of boosted the confidence a little bit and that's what we ended up having was about 150 people come and it's a bit of a of a blur for me um kind of going up there doing the thing reading the stuff yeah was a lot of fun last year was the reading with all the actors and uh, Dan's illustrations projected yeah and then Dr. League's played at the end of the show this year it's going to be uh, the reading of the book Uh, I'll be the narrator I have the original um, readers from last year plus guy Capos is taking on one of the characters so who's he playing? Or do you want to he, keep it a secret? Oh, no, he's, uh, he's going to be Alfie. Oh, cool. Cool. Um, last year, one of the readers couldn't make it last minute. So one reader did double. Okay. I uh, did two voices. So everyone that is reading on the stage this year, with the exception of one person, uh, who was unable to make it, um, were there last year and also on the audiobook recording. So that's, that's cool that they all. So when you, the experience of the event would be all the voice actors reading all the lines. Yeah. The artwork projected um i have about 60 sound effects that'll be performed um bringing in all the little nuances yeah and then i wrote seven and i recorded eight songs One's a cover um that set in the audiobook between the chapters so yeah. the experience of the live event will feel just like as if you're listening to the book or start with a song yeah the sound effects go into the chapter reading and song chapter song chapter yeah. until it's done and the only other thing that's being added to the live event is the next project I'm working on, um, Nocturnum Malorum. It's flash fiction, kind of in the theme of scary stories that tell in the dark. Yep. Uh, that folklore stuff. I like the idea of writing these short spooky stories and then having a counterpart artwork to it. And my yeah. friend uh, Mark Blanchard, who owns Tomb Gallery and Tattoo in Salem, Mass. He's doing the artwork for for that. So that. That opening part will be his artwork projected with a oh, story cool. being read by myself and voice actors, and if possible, which I think it will be, there might be some underscoring music underneath that to kind of set the tone. Cool. Um, that will be pre-recorded and not performed live. It's just a matter of um, putting those last
0: bits together. Sure, sure. So it sounds like you you know, in the next, you know, month or so, you still got a lot of work cut out <laughs> for you. Yeah, yep. yeah, 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 totally. But I mean. Most most artists that I know are work best under pressure and kind of always are under the gun with, with one project or, or another so when is um, which I, I, you, you sent me a little snippet of the audiobook and I it sounds great and I'm really dig really dig the score stuff so I'm psyched to hear the rest of it. Um, when is the audiobook? going to be available for people to, to hear? I, I At minimum, the first event, October 18th. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm hoping for sooner, just after this, I'm going over to the Electric Cave of Mark McElroy to yeah. uh, finish the mastering. Yeah. So once that is done and I give it a listen to make sure everything's cool, then it's off to the pressing plants. And it's about a two-week turnaround. Yeah. Um, if I can make them available sooner, they'll be in uh, two formats, a double CD version and then a chocolate bar with an MP3. Oh, that's cool. Um, so uh, that so that would be available at all the shows and also online and everything. So uh, as soon as possible. If not the
0: eighteenth, um, maybe a week or two before, if I can get them in time. Cool. It's um, I've seen, you know, going to uh, White Heron here. I've seen some of the chocolate bar. Is it the same company yes, that's it doing that? Yes, Yeah. That's very cool. That's very cool. I. Uh, it's funny. I actually the girl that I moved to Arizona with, you know, when Dan played out there, he stayed with her and, uh, I sent her a picture of one of his albums with that. She's like, Oh, I want that. I'm like, you live in Arizona. I'm not mailing you chocolate. You're just going (laughs) to have a puddle at the bottom of an envelope when it gets, you know, I was like (laughs) chocolate does not mail well to Arizona. Uh, so, so there's going to be a double, double CD. Uh, is it, um, I'm assuming it's going to have Dan's artwork on the on the. Cover yes. Too.
1: Yep. So I, I have a the one of my friends. Um, <clears throat> he used to work at a record label, uh, Nuclear Blast, and this band has his own label now. Yeah. Um, um, but they had an artist that they worked with that was able to be the person that took uh Dan's artwork and fashioned it into the shirt designs. Yeah. So I have two new shirt designs this year that he helped me um, reappropriate the artwork for. And he did the art layout for me. That's what he does the yeah, yeah. label is CDR. So he took Dan's art and manipulated it so that it fit into the CD format and added some fun little bits to it. The CD I'm, I'm really excited about because, you know, the, the song chapter element leads to the end of the first CD ending of the song. But the way that I recorded it is the song, um, it's called Sinking. The song builds and then it goes into as if um, the characters is going underwater, like yeah. in the story, and it leads into some samples. And then you put the next disc in and it starts off with the samples and it finishes the song. Oh, cool! So you know, even just audibly for someone who might still be a CD listener, you can sure you can kind of feel that transition. And then the CD, the second CD, um, the story takes up half of it, and then there is a bonus. Where each of the songs are put in concession. so for anyone that might want to listen to it in the car or something, they can just listen to the music. Oh, cool! And not have to skip, um, and the songs have extra elements to them. Uh, samples, yeah. And the last track has um, a bigger ending to
0: it. Nice, So some bonus nice. for the, the nice. End. Yeah, yeah, bonus track for the for the CD Die Hard, yeah. which I definitely am. I have you know, various jobs that I've had through the years, like working in retail and whatnot. Like I work with a lot, wide swath of age ranges and I've worked with a lot of people that are like 20 years younger than me. And like, t- like it's weird to me that I know people who have literally never bought a CD and I'm just like, wow. Cause I, well, <laughs> I decided I, I get these like, you know, and apologies in it, you know, to anyone who follows me on social media. Cause I, I get these ideas in my head and I post stuff ad nauseum and I just decided, I was like, I'm going to listen to all of my CDs in order, like one a day at, at the bare minimum, see how long it takes me. Nice. And you know, I'm, I, I'm probably on day like 25 or something. I'm like 48 CDs in, but I'm like, I just hit, uh, Alexis on fire. So I've got <laughs> a ways to go. Yeah. But like, yeah, uh, I, you know, someone's like, how many do you have, CDs do you have? Like two, 300. I was like, No, like 6,000. I'm like, (laughs) if I do the math right, if I just do one a day, I'm like, yeah, it's going to take me like 13 years to do this, but uh, hopefully, hopefully it'll take me less time, but you know, no, I'm excited that you're putting it out on CD because I do love vinyl, but it's, you know, I'm a nineties kid. CDs were the thing when I started buying my own music so that like the backbone of my music collection has always been CDs. Um, like I was, I've always been uncool because I don't know if you remember Columbia house records and tapes club. So they, they hooked you in with the, like, you get 13 CDs for a penny, but then you have to buy like eight more in the next two years at like 18, 19 bucks a pop. But so I did that and a month into it, this is probably like 1992, they were getting out of the record game at that point because at that point, nobody was pressing LPs anymore. Yeah. And they had started as a record a record club. So they're like, you buy any CD at full price, you can get as many records as you want for a dollar apiece. And my parents had a turntable at the time. So I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll be weird and have, like, records. <laughs> so I bought, you know, like 12 or 13 LPs. You know, I got, like, some Van Halen and stuff like that. and uh, But... And then for years afterwards when I first moved out of my parents' house, like I had a turntable, but it was hard to find new music on vinyl, you know, in the, the dark times of the nineties, and then I eventually like my vinyl collection like dwindled and then I kept my C D collection going and then now vinyl's, you know, back. I mean that's the biggest physical format now and yeah. you know, I still prefer CDs. It's tough because, you know, like uh, late nineties Underground stuff,
1: that's what got me into vinyl. You know, going yeah. to, to shows and picking up old seven inches, yeah, you know, things like uh, cave and early grace splits, stuff, yeah. you know. So that was like my first records were like those, Inkwell, and all these old like you know, hardcore bands. Yeah. So I always kept them, but I never really listened to them because never really had much of it. The sure. turntable that I had ended up breaking. And then, I, you know, years go by, but I was still buying vinyl records. Sure. Thankfully, a few years ago, I got a a turntable converter to USB, so then I put all my stuff, like I'm still dating myself, onto my iPod. Sure. <laughs> and and uh, I can still listen to it there, but I don't really buy as many
0: records as I used to just yeah. because I don't have the, the setup for it. Sure. Well, that's the thing, too, especially with like hardcore and, and punk and metal, like a lot of that stuff, like that's the only way you can get a lot of that stuff yeah. is stuff on 7 inch. It's so funny because. I've had it twice in the past in the past year, because a couple bands that I know um, have like gotten their catalog back from their original labels and are now the owners of it. And uh, the, one of them, uh, it's been out now for um, one of the guys, an old man, Gloom, reached out to me and he's like, "Hey, you have." this particular ep right and i was like yeah he's like cool we lost the files for it a long time ago can you like rip it and like send it to us because we want to put it up on on uh you know like Bandcamp and spotify and stuff like that so i was like yeah and then it happened again it's not out yet so i i, I won't mention what artist it is but someone's like hey do you have this that you know got put out 20 years ago and i was like yeah 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 i got it so i was just like oh finally my like Music hoarding tendencies are paying <laughs> off, you know. That's awesome. But, um, are have you thought about going forward, uh, maybe in the future releasing this as a, as a vinyl thing as well? I know if it's a double CD, you probably have to be at least triple vinyl.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember what the um, the time, time stamps are and all that. That definitely, I'm, I'm definitely the type that's open to being inclusive of all formats in any way and the reason that the book is eight and a half by eleven is because i didn't want dan's art scrunched into like a six by nine page so having it on vinyl um and it's all its glory yeah then you know the inserts because if i was to do it on vinyl i i would want to have all the illustrations inserted in which would be most ideal yeah the cd is cool and it will complement the book if you're looking at the book at the same time but having the vinyl i mean you could you could probably even you know, fashion is that the book and the vinyl all come together. Sure. Yeah. Make like like a deluxe package. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. I know it would, you know, I know a lot of people like, Oh, I'd love that. I'd love that. But I I also know that the like pressing vinyl is expensive and like, you know, that's a lot of, it's a lot of scratch up front to create that, especially where, you know, if you're self publishing, but yeah, that would be cool though. Yeah. Especially colored like (laughs) jack-o'-lantern or orange vinyl and stuff like that. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, speaking of which, I still have to... I know Dan just released a new album. And he's in Ireland right now, yep. so I have an excuse. I haven't grabbed his new record. I bought the CD from Bull Moose, but I haven't grabbed the record yet. Um, so are you... I know you did the music tracks for, for the audio version. Um, did you do it completely by yourself? Did Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I wrote it uh, with the exception of uh, one track... Which is a Judas Priest cover. Um, the rest, I composed it all, played it all, recorded yeah. it all, um, which was fun and scary at the same time. Because sure. every every other recording I've ever done, I was one person in a band of four or five other people making noisy stuff. So like you can't hear every little nuance. Yeah. And you know, Backstabbers Inc. In particular, we always recorded live, so you have the bleeding of all the other stuff. So if you make a little mistake or something, you can't hear it. But yeah. here. I ended up recording everything and there was an issue uh, with the first recording of all the tracks and the issue could not be rectified in post. So I ended up recording everything again uh, myself and it was, it was tough, but it was also really cool because then I could really work out removing little things like most of my little finger slides, little, little noises that you might make that, were being picked up really, really strongly. I could modify the way I played it yeah. to eliminate those little things to kind of keep the atmosphere uh, in the mood versus you know kind of getting lost if someone's playing this. Sure. sure. So, so that was, I've never played drums before on any recording and I was able to do that here and yeah, it's a lot of fun.
0: So it's, so it's live drums, not programmed drums? It's uh, me playing a digital drum set live. Sure, cool. Cool. What what, uh, what priest song? Oh, uh, Hellion. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's that's very appropriate. That's yeah. very
1: appropriate. And I said it right before the, the chapter Hellhound, and um, this won't give away too much, but on the bonus track in the story, when the Hellhound breaks through the window, the sound effect of the gra- glass shattering and the growling leading up to it, on the bonus track you hear the growling, and right when the song comes in, uh, it's the crash of the glass it's oh like, that's cool mm, you nice know, it's, it's not distorted you know really or anything but it fits with the atmosphere of
0: yeah everything that's going on nice so um, I know it's funny because you know like I said I had your brother on a couple years ago and we kind of went through uh, Backstabber's history at that point and I knew you had left the band at one point and I didn't you know you, you know he didn't didn't get too personal which is totally fine I didn't know what the relationship was like. And I actually hadn't seen either of you like together since then. So like seeing you guys at the Sunny day real estate show, I was like, oh, all right. So they're (laughs) clearly like, you know, fine with each other. Uh, But it's also like I have three brothers myself, two of whom were in a band together for quite some time. So what was, you know, what was it like being in a band with your brother and, you know, Depending on how much you want to get into it, what was your decision to want to kind of step away from the band?
1: Yeah, uh, I would have probably, this is kind of hard to say, but I don't know if I would have been in bands if it wasn't for my brother. Sure. Because he's more of the uh, extroverted yeah. social type and I was more quiet. And though we both grew up loving music, I, mean, I, I can't go a day without listening to it almost the entire day. But he, um, he was the one that kind of had the maybe blind, naive belief that we could do a band. Sure. That we had no you know musical background, no lessons or anything. And I remember he ended up getting a guitar, I think when he was 16. And uh, maybe a year or two later, I got a bass. Only because he had a guitar and we were close to being in a band. Right. And he was the one that was at a shows meeting people saying, oh, do you play drums and whatnot. So when we first started playing in bands together, um, it was As I Bleed. Um, it was awesome. He ran around on vocals. I learned how to play an instrument through my friend uh, Chad Colby and Nate Jones, Sean Fisher, and I. You know, we all just kind of grew together playing music, and that was really awesome. And I still remember band practices being some of my, my best times in my my past. Just like yeah. dudes getting together playing music. Mm-hmm. When that transitioned, uh, Matt had split off into Life Passed On, and I joined Piecemeal. Um, then Life Passed On was member just wasn't able to make it so much Peacemail broke up I popped back over and then we transitioned into Backstabbers Inc and that was really awesome because I I hadn't participated in the songwriting as much as anybody else had been in the band at the time so when I really started giving that a go um it became really really exciting so then Backstabbers kind of songwriting wise became 60% Matt writing 40% me okay. we write our own songs and we'd help each other out with the extra sure. parts so, doing the band, touring, shows, everything—we've always had a really great relationship, and still do. We're the type of brothers who never fought. Yeah. I think I kicked him once, <laughs> you know, like, but that was it. You know, we just we there's too many other things in the world to be ad, adverse with sure. each other. So we always had a really great relationship. When it came to me ending my stint in the band, I was I was getting burned out with what I mentioned at the very beginning with not really doing anything yeah. but still like having all the commitments of the band practices and stuff and going to practices and we it felt like at the time when i left with all the new members we were having we were just constantly kind of running through a song and be like okay that's enough uh, let's work on a new song and I, and I was always kind of you know really the the band mom sort of quality control person where i was like before let's nail the song we play it 20 times till you get it right and that just wasn't really happening, so I was feeling um, just dulled by it, and I was reflecting on being younger and having fun, and I was asking myself, am I still having fun? Right. And I wasn't at that point, so I thought getting some distance would be good, but I didn't want to be my brother. I didn't want to string him along and be like, I need a break, because right. we weren't really doing anything anyways. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of had to make the tough choice of being like, okay, hey, I'm just going to commit to being done it's cool if you run and find other people yeah and i'm glad that he did you know he found some of the members and they've been recording stuff um so that was all all good as far as our relationship goes yeah i know he's made comments and we were just talking just last week about doing some other stuff together so it's in our cards yeah going forward um to keep making music yeah i think once the audiobook is done where i've i've gotten some recording experience you know sort of demo at least recording experience it helps me a lot to have the space because we were never the type of musicians who go in and go I got a riff and people just jam it out like a lot of sure. bands do we're both isolated figure out all the parts come together and then work it out yeah. so having that space where I can kind of bring the vision um, completely together yeah. you know, is exciting you know? yeah. like I'm excited to like pull out all these old songs that, I've that never went
0: anywhere and yeah. record them and make them, them happen right on right on cool um, so wrap it up in a little bit I have like five or six questions that I ask everyone I'll do at the end but uh, where <clears throat> where, if, if someone is listening to this they're not in the area and they want to you know they want to buy a book they want to get the get the audio book get a t-shirt where can they go I mean I know that you're on social media but like what's, what, what's some places if someone's just hearing about this from listening to this, where where should they check it out?
1: Yeah. Um, one way would be social media, Brian Servan underscore author. Um, through that Instagram page, you can link up to my Etsy. Yep. You can also find it through Etsy. Um, I have a square page that you can also buy the books through directly from me. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, um, in local town, Portsmouth, um, off-pist sells the book and when it's in season and shirts. Yeah. Um, River Run Books sells it. Bull Moose actually sells it. and I will be doing some solo performances at Bull Mooses this year. I was just talking to Garrison about playing uh, the Portsmouth Bull Moose. Um, For the solo reading, it will be me reading a little bit, sound effects and music. Cool. The Scarborough, maybe Brunswick, Maine, and Keene. But Bull Moose, um, I will have the hardcover paperback and the audiobook CD at minimum. And um, other than that, I'll be... (laughs) Driving around without stuff in my car at all right, points, right, right.
0: you know. Selling out of the, uh, I'll wear the know.
1: shirt or something, you know. Yeah. But hey, that shirt, okay. You, you know, you know where they can get that book. I'll have some on me. Right, somewhere.
0: got it right in the trunk here. <laughs> nice, nice. And what are the what, what are the dates again that you're mm-hmm. um, doing the doing the reading the the performance? Uh, October eighteenth,
1: Coolidge Corner, Brookline, Mass. October twenty second, Three S Art Space, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. October twenty eighth, Word Barn, Exeter, New Hampshire,
0: and October 29th, the Space in Portland, Maine. Cool, cool. All right. So let me see, because it's been a couple of weeks since the last time I talked to someone. See if I remember the questions, because I have them somewhere, but I don't remember where I put my little my little uh, ammo bag. Uh, do you remember the first concert you ever went to? I do.
1: Uh, the first concert was at uh, Cafe Savoy in Manchester. Okay. Have uh, you ever go there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was um, Strike Three, which was Caleb's band, yeah. and I idolized him at that point because he was a little dude like me. Yeah. Um, so they played with Proclamation, Distrust, and Inline. Okay. And you know, the first, first show, my brother said, hey, you know, come with me and my friends to this. Yeah. And I was, my mind was blown. Yeah. Man. And that's kind of where I got the idea of like, hey, maybe I can be in a band. Like, sure. Those are just
0: like high school kids yeah. playing in bands and it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. For those listening, uh, Strike 3 was Caleb Schofield's band before he was in Caven where he's just the vocalist yeah. in Strike 3. It's funny, the last time I saw Caleb perform on stage was actually at 3S Space when Old Man Gloom played. Uh, it was funny because they played, th- it was either three or four shows, was the whole tour, and it was... Uh, they played New Mexico because that's where the band formed, and then uh, Boston, New York, and then Portsmouth, because Santos, the drummer, uh, he's he's cousins with uh, Chris Grenier, who used to who used to do the booking there. So that's kind of nice. how it happened. But it was just like, uh, um, I've yeah. been trying to track down the
1: uh, Strike Three demo as well. Yeah, I recently on some page I had mentioned, and someone's like, talk to someone else, and they said, oh they tagged somebody else and said, oh, this person probably has the demo. I haven't,
0: yeah. haven't got my hands on it, but... I'm actually, I'm kind of surprised that, you know, uh, sadly, you know, with Caleb's, you know, untimely passing, um, they did a lot as far as, like, you know, um, re-releasing the Zazobra stuff, which was his, you know, in effect, his solo records, and, you know, Kaven did some, some benefit shows and stuff like that. I'm kind of surprised that, None of that, none of his previous stuff has, you know, kind of bubbled to the surface more than, than it has, but maybe it will one day. Yeah. Who knows? I think it deserves to, to be out there for anyone who wants to hear it. Definitely. But, um, cats or dogs? Cats. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, let me see. Oh, uh, it doesn't have to be your A number one, but A, a favorite book uh, that you have. Uh, the first one that pops in the mind is The Outsiders. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I um I, I knew this fact, but I had forgotten about it. And then um, Rob Lowe was on a uh, podcast recently uh, talking about making making the film The Outsiders, and I forgot that S.E. Hinton was like fifteen yeah. when you know when she wrote that book. That's insane to yeah. me. Yeah, it's amazing.
1: And then yeah. even the follow up, you know, which became the other movie um, Rumblefish. Rumblefish. Yeah, you know.
0: Great storytelling. Yeah. Someone who hasn't lived that much. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's funny too. Like, it's funny how, you know, talking about time, uh, you see pictures, like I see pictures of my parents at the age that I am now. And you know, obviously I don't have a great perspective on what I actually look like, but I feel like they look like, I was like, Oh, they look like adults. I still feel like I'm a kid faking it. Do you know what I mean? I'm just like, that's crazy. So, you know, whenever that was written, I'm, I'm guessing like the fifties or the sixties, like, I'm sure like, you know, a 16 year old had still lived a lot of life. Yeah. Probably probably more like mid twenties, almost Mm thirties at that point. mm -hmm. That's funny. Um, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. All right. I think I've had... Because I only started doing these questions this season. This is this is my eighth season doing it. And uh, I think I've had one Star Trek so far. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to keep an eye on you. Uh, I mean, and I like Star Trek, but it was never like... I've always kind of looked at it as like the head versus the heart. Like, you know, Star Trek's always been a little bit more cerebral where like, you know...
1: Star Wars, I. it has its issues, but I think that um, there's something about it where it feels way more expansive. Sure. You know, it, there's all this stuff that in your headspace can exist between the stories yeah. that makes it just as entertaining. Yeah. Like the fanfare stuff yeah. that people do.
0: I heard when, when, you know, when Disney first put out The Force Awakens, the, the first movie that they did, there was a huge thing in Entertainment Weekly about it and whatnot, and there was a quote which... I thought like perfectly encapsulated like the fandom of it. It said uh we don't love Star Wars because it's great. Star Wars is great because we love it. And I was like, "Oh yeah, that that actually like really like kind of boils it down to its essence." Um and yeah, I I do feel like you know, and so many middle-aged men who who are like oh, they're ruining this. I'm just like, I mean, you can love what you love as a kid and you don't have to... There's so much Star Wars content now that there's literally stuff for anyone who wants something catered towards them. Um, And I just feel like now that George Lucas is not the sole reign holder anymore, it's kind of like, oh, I have an idea that could happen in Star Wars and they're like, oh, you know, tell us about it. Let's see if we can make it work. There's a lot of different storytelling elements that are going into that which is which i think is great like there's there's room for different types of stories being told with that so all right i know there's another one before the last one um i don't know where i left my little thing so uh we might have to just do the do uh, all right i'll just do the last one then i might have to uh tack it on later if the the other question but what's your favorite dinosaur oh man i don't know enough of their names um, you can just describe it. Most of them, people are like, oh, the one with this and that. Yeah, I think, I think when I was a kid, when I think back to being a kid and
1: knowing a little bit more about it, I think it would have to be the pterodactyl. Yeah, there's something. I don't know. There's something scary to, to me about something that can just kind of swoop down and pick me up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, kind of like a you know thunderbird,
0: you know, kind, kind of, of kind of mythology thing. I yeah. um. I always, th- it's funny, because as a kid, I never was terrified of the pterodactyl. I always thought of it in my head. As- I was like, oh, that's the bird dinosaur. Yeah. Um, which turns out they're all the bird dinosaur. <laughs> but, uh, and it's not a great movie, but Jurassic Park 3 has my favorite dinosaur moment in all those. Um, I don't know if you've seen the third one. No, I, I actually saw it on, on the tv the other day and i thought of putting it on soon it's it's not great but there are a few things that i get that's got going for it one there's dinosaurs in the first scene like it hits the ground running they're like all right we're on the island here's what's going on but there's a scene and you know i apologize if i'm spoiling it a little but it's like a you know it's a 20 year old movie at this point uh there's a scene where they're essentially in a giant bird cage in a valley between two mountains where they have the pterodactyls and there's a bridge going across and there's mist and everything and a pterodactyl lands on it and starts walking towards them and just seeing the size of it and just like I was like oh my god it's like twice the size of an alligator but with wings I was like that's that would be terrifying yeah 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 I, I it's my favorite dinosaur moment in that series but yeah right on cool uh, well I appreciate you taking the time to do this um, I'm looking forward to checking out the show at at 3S and uh, yeah, anyone who's listening to this check out Brian Servin's Lore of the Jack-O-Lantern. Thank you. That's That's awesome. (laughs)